Good evening. Welcome to our evening Bible study Sunday night here at Grace Church in Menor. We're glad that you're able to join us, whether it's by uh, the website or YouTube or whatever other means you're using to join us. We're glad to have you here tonight. And we're going to go to Luke chapter 11 this evening in our time together. I'm going to read that passage in just a moment, give you a second to turn there. Luke chapter 11, we're at the beginning of the chapter, the first 13 verses. This is a section that I've simply called Instruction on Prayer. Some of the Lord's instructions for us recorded by Luke with regard to the ministry of prayer. It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. Then he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we also for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. Then he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend, and goes to him at midnight, and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he answers and says, Do not bother me. The door has already been shut, and my children and I are in bed. I cannot give up, uh, get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Now suppose one of your fathers, excuse, excuse me. Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he is asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit? to those who ask him. And so we have uh, an instruction here by the Lord Jesus Christ recorded in Luke as a part of this whole section of Luke that is a record of the Lord's teaching ministry. We quickly recognize this passage or some elements of this passage as being very similar to the gospel of Luke, or excuse me, the gospel of Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount section of Matthew's gospel. Luke does not record all of these teachings in the same order or in the same place in his book that the other gospel writers do. But nevertheless, as Luke presents these, I want us to uh, get the, the grasp the, of the uh, context here as we begin. The instruction that he gives is given on a certain occasion. We're not told when or where this happened, simply that it happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. 
the Lord Jesus Christ had been praying, whether the disciples could hear him or whether Jesus was at a distance, and Jesus came back. The disciple, in asking, has evidently been thinking about John's instruction as well. He, has, he knows, this disciple knows that Jesus has just finished praying. Evidently, this man who asked the question was not one of John's disciples because he refers to uh, John teaching his disciples, not saying, as John taught us. I suspect that this disciple has heard some of the other disciples pray as well. Those apostles who would been disciples of John. So perhaps this man has heard Jesus pray. He has heard perhaps some of the disciples of John pray and recognizes that he himself does not have exactly what they had. We have no idea what all is on his mind. But somehow the example of Jesus on this occasion stirred a fresh interest in one of these disciples. He must have noticed something or he had perhaps been thinking about it over a period of time. So he makes request for this instruction. The Lord quickly responds and gives him that instruction beginning in verse 2. But I want you to notice that the Lord has a certain intention in this instruction, and we find that intention in a parallel passage in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 7 where the Lord, before he uh, gave what we call the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, there the Lord warned his people of vain repetition, of useless repetition of phrases, perhaps of prayers, even of passages of Scripture. Now, it's, it's, uh, very, it's well known that the Jewish people of that day would often pray the Scriptures. They would pray... Uh, from the the Psalms and other passages of Scripture. And for any of us, when we have memorized something or when we have used it often, we have a hazard, a spiritual hazard of it becoming empty, vain, useless. And there certainly is no reason why we can't use the Lord's Prayer in our own praying or in our church services. But I think a lot of times we have gotten away from the use of it because we have seen it so often become an empty repetition, a vain repetition. We need to be very careful about that. The Lord did not want this to become simply something we say. He wasn't giving us the exact words of a prayer. Instead, he was giving us a pattern for prayer. He was giving us Uh, as one writer said, the themes that should be central to prayer. He seems to have intended by these few words of instruction to guide his disciples as to what themes should be central to prayer. You'll also notice that this particular record given by Luke, when you compare it to Matthew, you will notice that this is a slightly abbreviated version of the Lord's Prayer. There are some things in Matthew that are not in Luke. And again, that would indicate that this is not intended for verbatim usage, for repetitious use, for mindless repetition, but instead as a pattern for us to think about. And so then it's 
altogether appropriate for us to take a few minutes to look at this pattern that he gives us, starting in verse uh, 2. In this pattern, he starts with, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. The record here actually gives us five requests. This, a record of the Lord teaching to make five requests. That Not because five is the key number and every prayer has to be five, but he hits on five key areas, five factors that ought to be characteristic of prayer. I want you to notice, first of all, the address of this prayer to the Father. There is a relationship in prayer a relationship to our Heavenly Father. Now, we have a lot of confusion in this world today about uh, who are God's children and who has God as their Father. And I simply point you to John chapter 1, where it says that the Lord Jesus Christ came unto his own, and his own received him not. But he, as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the children of God. Mankind is not a child of God by birth, by human nature. This kind of a relationship with God the Father is something that is entered into by faith in the instruction of the Word of God, the declaration of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have never come to Christ for your salvation, then you have never come into a relationship with God as your Father. He is your creator, but you cannot yet call him Abba, Father, until you have become one of his children, and we become his children by believing in what he has said, that we need the Lord Jesus Christ, that without Christ, we are still in our sin. We need a redeemer, a savior. Jesus shed his blood that we might become the children of the living God. This gives us a, an incredible opportunity in prayer, an incredible privilege in prayer. These opening words in this prayer focus our gaze upon God. We are not approaching him casually. We are not going to begin with ourself, but we are going to begin with God, with God our Father. The Lord was well aware of how self-centered and aimless our prayers can sometimes be. But if we begin by realizing that we are speaking to the sovereign Lord of the universe, if we really believe that we are speaking to the one who spoke and the worlds were created, then our prayers will be more God-centered and less self-centered, more correctly purposeful. That was a statement by one writer on this passage. The starting point of our praying is very important. We are, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, coming to the Father as in this relationship, given the privilege of coming to him in prayer. But he doesn't, uh, he, he doesn't uh, stop there with just the relationship of prayer. He then makes his first request concerning the worship of God in prayer. Hallowed be your name. This is a request. God, make it so that your name is hallowed, 
not because God's name isn't. It is hallowed in the sense that God is holy, but not all men recognize it. God's name is holy. He is unapproachable in holiness. And yet, God's reputation is not revered by all men. This is, in a sense, a request, Lord, let your name be known all over the world. Let men come to you. Let men bow down before you. Let men respond to the greatness of your power and your glory. Let men fall at the knees of their creator and call to Christ as their Savior to come into this relationship with you as their Father. He is unapproachable in holiness, and yet God gives to those who have come to Christ, He gives His Holy Spirit so that we might enter into this relationship on holy ground, based especially upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ through His shed blood. He cleansed our sin, and the gift of righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, is given to the child of God. It is through Christ that we can worship. It is through Christ that we can come in prayer and recognize the hallowed name of God. And every time we share the gospel with someone, we are giving them the opportunity to come into that recognized relationship where God is hallowed. God's name is hallowed. God's name is recognized as being holy. So in a certain sense, the Lord Jesus Christ is teaching us that when we pray, we should be reflecting the relationship that we have toward God. If you're a person who has never come to the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation, the one prayer the Lord is looking for from you is a recognition of your sinfulness, your rec the recognition of your need for the Lord Jesus Christ. And for you to call out upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you might be saved. That's the prayer that God is looking for from the repentant sinner. The sinner who recognizes that he must come into that relationship with Christ in order to have eternal life. So we begin with worship in prayer. But then the next request that is given reminds us that we must, be, uh, we, we must come in submission in prayer. Your kingdom come. Lord God, please have your kingdom come. And Matthew gives us a little bit fuller statement uh, on earth as it is in heaven. This is a request for God's will to be accomplished. This is a request for God's plan to be carried out in this world. This is ultimately a longing for the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. True disciples of Jesus Christ long for the day when he shall return and everything shall be under his feet. We long for the reign of Christ over the kingdom of Israel and over the world. We fix our faith and our hope on the will of God. And that's a very interesting thing for us to think about in this uh, day and age, in this weekend. Uh, as we uh, have, have come through this long week of waiting for election results and, and wondering what all is happening and whether it's going to end up in the courts and all of those things. We long for the will of God to be accomplished. We long for the ultimate plan of God where God will be glorified in Jesus Christ as Jesus Christ reigns over the kingdom of Israel and over the world in the millennial kingdom, the 1,000-year reign of Christ, and then when that gets carried over into the eternal reign of God over the new heavens and the new earth. And all will be done for the glory of God. And so we worship God, we submit to God, we delight in God's will. These things are vital to, to, to 
true prayer. And too often today, we perhaps doubt God's plan. We may struggle to submit totally to him. Sometimes we come uh, to pray, and, and we are trying to convince God of our will. We want God to change his mind so that our will will be done. No, that doesn't work that way. The believer comes to the Father and yieldingly says, Father, your will be done. Let your will be done in my life and on this earth. This, my friend, provides a great deal of stability for the believer, for the church. We are not subject to the whims of this world. We're not subject to the ups and downs and the upheavals of this world. Our hope is fixed on the plan of God and the will of God. And so we recognize that in submission in our prayer. The next thing that he mentions in verse 3 is our dependence in prayer. It's very simply stated, give us each day our daily bread. This is the beginning of the section in the praying when we begin to petition the Lord for our own necessities. And you'll notice the example he gives is very simple. It is not extravagant. We need food for the body in an earthly sense. And in the next verse, we are going to need forgiveness for the soul. There's no room here to ask for luxuries, for excesses. We're warned in James chapter 4 that many times we have asked for things so that we can uh, just enjoy them in our own desires. And uh, we ask and we have not. Why? Because we have asked amiss. We ask wrongly. We ask with the wrong motives. Uh, one writer uh, stated it something like this, How strange it must seem to God to hear people praying to him all over the world. In some parts of the world, people praying simply for a bowl of rice to feed to their starving children. While in other parts of the world, people are praying for a brand new car or an even better paying job than the one they already have. Indeed, so many times our praying is a reflection of our selfishness of our worldliness, of our fleshliness. But God does want to hear from his children. God does want to hear from his children as we acknowledge to him our needs, because he knows us. He knows our needs, and he has ordained that we would come to him and ask for him to supply those needs. We are coming to him to recognize our dependence upon God. Ever since God formed Adam from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul, ever since that very moment, our breath has been dependent upon God. Our life is dependent upon God. Our strength is dependent upon God. We are dependent upon God for our every need. And we would do very well in our praying to recognize that consistently. This is, can be part of our praying at mealtime, recognizing not only thanksgiving for what the Lord has provided, but a declaration of our utter dependence upon God for his complete provision. And thus, as we pray, God is pleased to provide in response to our persistent 
requests. God is pleased to provide as he has ordained for us to ask him in prayer. And so we have a demonstration of our dependence in prayer. This is another way we could say this is our humility in prayer, to humble ourselves and recognize that we are mere creatures of the dust, made alive and dependent upon the Lord. In verse 4, he moves on to confession in prayer. Now, he asks there for God to forgive. He teaches the disciples to ask for God to forgive us our sins. So we begin uh, to confess our own sins. At some point in prayer, we should always take time to confess our sins. But the confession of our own sins also reminds us that there may be others against whom we have sinned. And perhaps we need to seek their forgiveness. There may be others who have sinned against us, and we need to learn how to forgive them. But it begins by confessing our own sins. First John chapter 1, I'm not going to go into that in much detail tonight. Confession in prayer is an essential part of praying. Wrestling through a biblical forgiveness of for ourselves in Christ and what that means and how we receive that. It is not a feeling. It is a judicial declaration that God has accomplished for us. Wrestling through that in our own life, wrestling through biblical forgiveness toward others and wrestling through the need that we may have to go to others to ask to be forgiven. These are all parts of wrestling through the area of confession and forgiveness. The last section that he gives in verse 4 in this prayer is, is a simple statement here, the simple request here, and lead us not into temptation. There's some discussion about the translation here. It might be better to translate this, bring us not into temptation, because God does not lead anyone into temptation. There's no such thing as God enticing anyone to sin. James chapter 1 makes that very clear. This is more the idea of Jesus urging his disciples to pray that they will be able to avoid temptation or be strengthened in the temptation. As the Lord uh, instructed the disciples later in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prayed that they would not be tempted. We are to pray that we would be delivered from situations that would lead us to sin. We should be praying that God would take us through the circumstances of life where temptation is a possibility and that we might be victorious. It, uh, I think it includes the idea that in James chapter 1, the word temptation is also the same as the word that's translated trials. And God does send trials into our lives to prove our character, to chasten us, to test us. But when we undergo a trial, it is very easy for us to yield to our own evil lusts that can change the sanctifying work of God in a trial into the corrupting influence of the evil temptation, the solicitation to sin, and we end up in sin. And we should be praying that as we go through the trials of life, we would see the dangers that we ourselves bring with us wherever we go. 
We should be praying for ourselves in the battle with sin. We should be praying for judgment and discernment. We should be praying for our own walk with God and purity in the face of temptation. One, uh, one writer uh, said it this way, This is not a coward's prayer. No man is a coward for being afraid of his own heart. It marks the highest quality of courage to know what to be afraid of and to fear it. I thought that was an especially good statement. To pray that God would keep us from falling to temptation is, is not a cowardly thing. It is a, an honest thing because we are sinners still by nature, even though we've been born in Christ. To pray that God would not ever even bring us within the possibility of temptation would be to ignore the very nature of our own sinful character. But we ought to pray in a consciousness of our own weakness, the weakness of our own nature. We ought to pray that God would not suffer the trials of life to become temptations to evil. So here we have a simple prayer, a prayer which begins with worship it includes submission, it includes dependence, it includes confession, it includes a request for strength in the face of temptation. A model prayer giving us several areas of life to consider as we pray. In the middle of this section, beginning with verse 5 then, he wants us to consider the importance of persistence in prayer the importance of continuing in prayer, of continuing over time in prayer. And so in these verses, we find in order to teach us persistence in prayer, he gives us, first of all, the example of a friend who is persistent, and then he gives us a command for persistence, beginning in verse 9. But beginning in verse 5, the example of this persistent friend, he paints the scenario, and I'm not going to read it again, but he paints the scenario of a man who is asleep in his home, and remember, uh, we even talked about this last week with the home of Mary and Martha, it was pretty typical for a, a family to have a one or maybe two rooms at the most in their home, and often the whole family would sleep on the floor in the same room. Quite often, it was one main room, a sleeping room that in the daytime was used for other activities, including preparing food. And so here a man is at midnight. Now remember, these folks did not have electricity and, uh, and television. They didn't stay up until the 11 o'clock news. They didn't stay up until midnight. These are people who often went to bed with the sun. And so they, as my grandparents used to say, they went to bed with the chickens and they got up with the chickens. And so midnight is, a, is an unheard of hour for anyone to be knocking at the door. That, that is to emphasize the, the bothersome nature of this guy who's coming pounding on the door at midnight. And it's a friend. And the friend hollers through the door, Hey, somebody just came to my house from a journey, and I've run out of food. I need to borrow some bread. Can you give me some bread? And in verse 7, 
we, we see that even though there is an existing friendship and even though a need has arisen and even though this man has appealed for help, there is, first of all, an initial refusal. There is resistance to the request. Now, this man is not appealing at the door for selfish reasons. He has guests who are in need, and he wants to honor those guests by providing refreshment. This was part of the culture. It was important to provide hospitality for your guests. Now, remember, people could show up unannounced at your door. Uh, There was no telephone. There was no telegraph. There was no mail uh, to speak of in any uh, consistent fashion. And so if people were traveling and they got to your house, you might not know they were coming and they just show up. That's what happened. It's inconvenient. It is perhaps stretching the bonds of friendship. But here it's happening. The guy goes to his friend's house at midnight and he's pounding on the door. And in verse 7, we see that refusal. Don't bother me. Stop troubling me. The door is already shut. My children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. If I get up and start getting stuff around in the kitchen, I'm going to wake up the kids. It's going to disturb the whole family. And uh, you, you know what it's like to get awakened from a dead sleep, and we're, we're sort of either out of it or grouchy or, or not too... Uh, pleasantly disposed toward other people and that's exactly what happens so this man is not at all disposed toward his friend but in verse 8 I tell you even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend not because of the friendship yet because of his persistence the continued hammering at the door and calling and asking. And so it's interesting that in this story, we have a man who is at the door and he's asking and asking and asking and he's knocking and knocking and knocking. He is seeking and seeking and seeking. And because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. He eventually yields and makes provision. We have other examples in Scripture of uh, someone, uh, of people who were persistent in their asking. Abraham, in asking God to be gracious toward the city of Sodom on behalf of Lot and his family, uh, was very persistent in prayer in Genesis 18. Many of you are familiar with that account. And in Matthew 15, we have a Syrophoenician woman who comes and pleads with the Savior on behalf of her daughter, a Gentile woman, a non-Jewish woman. And she comes and she pleads and she pleads. And the Lord Jesus Christ ministers to her graciously. If a sleepy, unresponsive friend, at first deaf to both friendship and necessity, can be won over by sheer persistence to do all that was requested, how much more... Can our persistence in prayer be expected to prevail with God, whose very nature is rich unto all that call upon him? Jeremiah said, call upon me, call out unto me, and I will show you great and mighty things. I will show you rich things. The Lord God wants to give us that which we need. And so we have a human example of a sleepy friend, an unresponsive friend, yet the persistence of the asker. 
the persistence of the seeking man, the persistence of the one who is knocking, eventually gets him the response. Now, I do not think that we are to make any parallel here to the Lord being in any way unresponsive, but the point is the persistence of the man who is asking. And so the Lord then, having given the example of a persistent friend, gives us the command to persistence. Verse 9, So I say to you, ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. The word ask... The word seek, the word knock, are given in the sense that shows a continuous asking. If you ask and ask and ask, if you seek and continue to seek and continue to seek, if you knock and you knock and you knock, if you are persistent in your asking, persistent in your seeking, persistent in your knocking, then you will receive, it will be given, you will find, it will be opened. And those are future, and they are passive. It will be given to you. God, implied there, will give it to you. God will help you to find it. God will open it to you. Why? Because in verse 10, Christ said, Everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Perhaps James was thinking of this very statement when he said, In James chapter 4, you have not because you ask not. You have not because you ask not. Perhaps we have asked, but we weren't really very serious about it or sincere about it, and so we've only asked once or occasionally or rarely. And so the Lord Jesus Christ is telling us that we are to ask and continue to ask and continue to seek what God would have for us. By the way, the word ask in verse 9 is a word that is used when an inferior person asks something of a person in a superior position. It is used of the beggar at the gate in Acts chapter 3 and verse 2 when the beggar is asking. He's on the ground. He's considered socially inferior. I'm not saying he was in the eyes of God any less important than anyone else, but in the social structure of the day, he would have been considered inferior. And so he uses this term, asking the people going by, asking those in a superior position. Likewise, um, the Lord Jesus Christ, whenever he is praying and asking the Father, he never uses this word. He always uses a different word, that reflects someone asking who is equal in position. And so this is a word that is especially for us to ask. We are asking our Heavenly Father, one in a far superior position. We are dependent upon Him. So we have seen the pattern for prayer. We have seen the command for persistence in prayer. And now in the rest of this section from verses 11 through 13, we see the surpassing grace of God in prayer. Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish, 
If you will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? The expected answer is no, of course not. Or if he is asking for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? And again, the expected answer is, of course not. The Lord here appeals to the general sense of earthly fathers, that earthly fathers desire good things for their children. Now, unfortunately, we have to state that there are exceptions to that, and, uh, and, and there are men who uh, would not follow that example that God has established, that men would provide for their families, and men would love their families, and men would care for their families, that men would be a shepherd for their families. And so we have, unfortunately, because of human sin, we have men that, that in fact, do bring evil to their family. But in the, in the broad scope of human life, we understand that fathers delight to give good things to their children. And he gives the examples in verses 11 and 12. But then he goes to the contrast. If you, being human, being evil, being sinful, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? Will your heavenly Father give to the Holy Spirit? Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. How much more? The Lord Jesus Christ often used that comparative phrase. How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? You know, parents often want to do things for their children, and sometimes because of the constraints of budget and bills and so on, they're not able to do everything they want to do for their children. But they will find a way, they will find a way to scrimp and to save and to sacrifice themselves so that they can do nice things for their children. And uh, that may be more in one culture than another, more in one family than another, more in one economic culture. Uh, um, uh, setting than another. But, but the point is taken that as human beings, we delight in taking care of our children. We, we like to do good things for our children. And if we like it, and we're corrupt, and we're imperfect, and we're selfish, how much more God in heaven delights to give good gifts to his children. What a contrast the superior graciousness of our Heavenly Father. Contrasted with the love of an earthly father, contrasted with the evil heart of an earthly father, contrasted, contrasting the perfect, benevolent, gracious, merciful kindness of our Heavenly Father who delights, as James again said, every good gift and every perfect gift comes from the Father above. The perfect superior graciousness of our Heavenly Father. How much more He wants to give. And in this particular case, the gift is the Holy Spirit. He wants to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. The greatest gifts of, of all. And it's interesting that these words are used. The Father sent His Son. The Father gave His only begotten Son that He might bring us through the blood of Christ into his family. God gives the Holy Spirit as a gift to indwell those who know Christ, to become the seal, to become the earnest, to do all of these wonderful things for us in Christ. And so how greatly our Heavenly Father delights to bless us with all of these things.
In this passage of Scripture, the Lord Jesus Christ is responding to a request by one of the disciples to learn how to pray. He gives them a pattern of prayer that is not intended to be memorized for empty repetition, but a pattern to be reflected upon, meditated upon, as a pattern that influences our thinking, our praying, gives us categories, gives us aspects of prayer, gives us various perspectives in prayer as we pray. And then he reminds us of the need, in fact, commands us to be persistent in prayer, to be persistent. And many of you that are listening could share with us testimonies of having prayed for uh, someone's salvation for many, many years or praying for a certain uh, answer to prayer for many, many years before you see God answer that. And that persistence in prayer reminds me of the statement again in James, uh, the prayer of, of, the, of the righteous man, that faithful, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And then we have, finally, a great need to rejoice and be thankful in the superior grace of our Heavenly Father, who answers our prayers, who hears our prayer, who gives us the privilege of prayer and the responsibility of prayer. What an amazing opportunity that God has given us. He has given us an open door to heaven. He has given us an invitation into the very throne room of God in the person of Christ, the great high priest who stands for us there. All of us can think of human friends that might respond to our requests. Many of us had earthly fathers who delighted to respond to our requests. So friends, let's be motivated to reflect on our heavenly father and come to him with our biblical requests. How much our heavenly father desires to give to us great and gracious gifts. I trust that you will read over these passages and reflect on these things. Father in heaven, thank you this day for this passage of scripture. Thank you for a disciple who was discerning, who was thinking, who was observing. And whatever was going on in his mind, Lord, thank you that he asked the question and that Christ used the opportunity to answer and to instruct. Father, we confess that it's pretty easy for us to fall into patterns of empty praying, repeating particular phrases, perhaps often praying the same things or praying for the same things and not thinking about how well balanced we are in prayer. Are we including worship? Are we including confession? Are we bringing our needs before the Lord? Or are we just bringing a grocery list of all the things we want? So, Father, I pray that you will help us to apply these things to our own hearts. And, Father, encourage us in the need for persistence, how quickly I think we sometimes give up and stop praying. And, Father, in the light of all of these things this day, I pray for the United States of America. I pray for governing leaders, those who 
uh, are still in office, those who may be coming into office, those who will continue in office. We pray for the salvation of souls from the highest levels of government down to the local levels as well. We pray for the salvation of men and women that will humble their hearts before the God of heaven and cry out to him for, need, for their needs in Christ to be saved. And Father, we pray for Christians in the halls of government that they would be bold in their witness, fearless in their stand, and courageous in these days. We pray, Father, for the darkness of uh, the, the, the spirit that is upon many places and many parts of our culture in many hearts. There is a spiritual darkness in our land, and we pray for the light of the Word of God to penetrate that darkness, for the Lord Jesus Christ to be glorified by the salvation of souls. And Father, it's very evident that the work of the church is not complete. There are many that we can reach, and we pray, Lord, that you will equip us both to pray for them and also to reach out as you have instructed us. Father, this night we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Lord bless you. Have a great evening, and God bless you as you go out this week into the world and walk as salt and light in this world. Take care.